So if you would, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. No, that is not Hebrews. 2 Corinthians 4. And I will read verses 7 through 18. Second Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death, For Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. So we also believe, and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise with Jesus, raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal." He who has near to hear, let him hear. So the first thing I want to address is why divert from Hebrews. Uh, we're still on schedule. What I will do next week is preach the entirety of what Hebrews 11 has to say about the life of Moses all in one message, including his parents. I was originally planning to split those into two, but we can address them all in one. And I think uh, just... As much as I am aware of what is going on in the world and in the lives of people I love and in my own life, this idea of suffering is something that we need to address. There never comes a time where you stop needing to address suffering. It is the nature of our world that it will always be something that is with us. And so so having a Christian understanding of suffering is profoundly important. But there are unique times in our lives where we might need to give it a little bit more attention than usual. And I hope that by diverting from our plan in Hebrews 11 to address this subject, it helps you understand the seriousness with which and the urgency with which I view this subject. You don't have to look very far to see that suffering 
is nearer to us, in a sense, than it ever has been. And I think that trend will only continue just as things go from bad to worse and the corruption of the world increases. I think it will be ever with us increasingly. Often the Bible answers questions that we aren't asking. We might want the Bible to tell us any number of things. There are all sorts of debates between Christians and all sorts of things being discussed by Christians or people who esteem themselves to be Christians. There are cultural and political divides where we want the Bible to give us a clear and concise answer. But the Bible is more concerned about helping you know how to suffer. And I want to help you suffer well. And there are a few challenges with this topic. Before we get to the text, I want to go through a few of these challenges. There are four. There are more, but I'm going to discuss four of the challenges that make this discussion difficult. Number one, it's not attractive. (laughs) Uh, Immediately, sometimes the answers the Bible gives us are not the answers we want. You don't grow a church, conventional wisdom says, by actively promoting how to suffer well. You never see that on a church billboard. You want to learn how to suffer well? Come to our church. It just doesn't happen. Yet this is a great treasure of the Scriptures. There are literally hundreds of passages dealing with this very thing. And there are at least two books written where the major subject is suffering. And many others where it's, it's immediately the second major point. We do ourselves a great disservice to dismiss it. So it's not attractive, but it's a treasure. Challenge number two, we're often embarrassed by the cost of discipleship, the real cost of following Jesus. Do we think of the Christian life in the same way that Jesus and his apostles talk about it? When we present what it means to follow Jesus to those who don't know Him or don't trust Him, when we speak of what it means to belong to a church to those who don't belong to a church or or devotion to Christ to those who are not devoted to Christ, do we speak of it in the same ways that the apostles do? And I'm not saying we should exclusively say these things, but we should at least say them. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted Matthew 15, 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. John 16, 2, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. John 16, 33, the second part, the world, In the world you will have tribulation. It doesn't have to be the tribulation. You're just going to have it. In this world. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you that you should not only believe in Christ, but that you should also suffer with Him for His sake. Hebrews 12.7 It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? So being disciplined, suffering, tribulation, expulsion, hunted, persecution, loss of everything, including life itself. Put that on a church billboard. 
But yet this is what the Lord and his apostles call us to and warn us about. Challenge number three. It is difficult to balance compassion with truth. We were talking about this even this morning in our Sunday school hour. Especially on this topic, it is very difficult to balance the truth, what the Bible says, with being compassionate to those who are suffering. And because that balance is difficult, we just kind of avoid it. There are different kinds of imbalance. Some of you may know a great many things about God's purpose in suffering, but struggle to show compassion for those who are suffering. I had one person tell me, well, I'm probably not the best person to have around a family who's lost a loved one because it happens to everybody. It's a lack of compassion. On the other hand, some of you may have a large heart for compassion to those who suffer especially, but you may feel that compassion is at odds with truth. Where we see balance is in Jesus himself, of course, with Lazarus. Some people focus just on the fact that he cried with them, and he did. He wept, and he showed compassion, but he also taught them. Before he even comes to the point of crying, he's telling Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He, he balances them perfectly, showing deep compassion, even knowing what he's going to do, weeping with them, but telling them the truth even before telling them that what he's going to do is going to resolve all of it. And the imbalance we see is in Job's friends, of course. But what was their error? What was the error of Job's friends? It was not that they started talking. Some people say that. Well, Job's friends, they just should have stayed silent, shut up, and not say anything. That probably would have been better than doing what they did. But their error was not in speaking or teaching. It was saying things that were not true of God. That's how God responds at the end. He says, they have not spoken rightly about me. Implying that if they had said the true things about God, they would have not received any kind of condemnation. So that's the third challenge. We struggle with that balance of compassion and truth. And the fourth challenge, and I said I was going to give you four, I'll give you five. The fourth challenge is that we often offer no better solutions than the world. The stuff of popular Christian thinking out there is really no different than popular psychology or philosophy. Here are a few things we say. And if you said this, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to pick on you. These are just these aren't what the fullness of what the Bible has to say. We live in a fallen world. No duh. <laughs> things are tough. Uh, the, the next thing we say is bad things happen to good people. Just like stating that as a fact is going to help anything. Or it's going to be okay. There's a song, even as I was thinking about this, a song comes on over the radio. Uh, maybe you've heard it, and if you love this song, I'm sorry. Um, though the mountains may be moved into the sea, though the ground beneath might crumble and give way. This is why we read Psalm 46. I hear my father singing over me. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I blamed myself. And if I'm honest, maybe I've blamed you too. But you would not forsake me because only good things come from you. And the chorus resounds again. 
My father sings over me. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Is that all the Bible has to say? Is that all the Father says over us? Even if you look at Psalm 46 where that idea is drawn from, what does God say? He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. That's the foundation that we rest on. And is it true that only good things from, come from God? What does Job say? Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's after all of his children are killed and all of his possessions are stolen. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. And then what does he say? After his body is afflicted, his wife tells him he should curse God and die. And he says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Only good things come from God. Not in the sense that song means. Most of the popular Christian answers for and concerning suffering out there are biblically illiterate. And I want to equip you. I want to give you the Bible's full answer for suffering in your life. Challenge number five, and this is the main one that we'll be addressing here. We don't often answer the question, why? Maybe we're just scared of saying what we know, but I think for the most part, we just don't know what to say when this question comes up. Why? Why the suffering? Why this suffering? Why me? Even our best biblical answers sometimes don't say all that can be said. Of all the questions about suffering, I think this is the one that we avoid, maybe out of sensitivity, Sometimes we don't like the answers the Bible gives. I was uh, listening to one of my former pastors. This was in the middle of a sermon. I forget what the setting was exactly. But he was telling about how he preached a sermon for a funeral. A funeral of a young girl who had lost her life to cancer. You know, un under 15, young girl. And he was telling us that at the end of the day, we just don't know what God is doing in the suffering. And to be fair, I think I understand what he means, that we can't peer into the mind of God and know exactly what he's doing behind the scenes and all of the wisdom. But if what we're saying to encourage people is we just don't know, that is in direct contradiction to what the Bible has to say because the most comforting passages about suffering begin with the statement, and we know. The Bible gives us assurance and clarity about what is happening in our lives, even our very own lives. So does the Bible answer the question of why in the midst of suffering? Yes, in general, it does answer the question why because of sin. We don't live in a fallen world. We live in a cursed world. We sinned. But... There's also a why for God's redemptive purposes, generally. He's subjected to the world to futility. We won't get into the answer of Romans 8. That's more generally. There's this groaning that's happening in the creation, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. So it answers that question generally. But I think it actually answers the question, why personally? For you, 
that specific suffering? And yes, I hope to show you that answer today. So my objectives are these. I want you to understand the beauty of this text from 2 Corinthians in context. And I want, you to help, I want to help you suffer well. I want to help you help each other suffer well. I want to help us offer the treasure of the gospel in the face of human suffering. And I want to prepare you for glory. So I'll actually read verses 1 through 6 to give us some context. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, the enemy, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you can just embrace that text, learn that text, marinate in that text, it will do you such a world of good. Understand what's going on in the world. But if Paul stopped there, If that's where he stopped in his line of thinking, what would your expectations be for the flavor, the style, the look of a Christian life or the life of service to the Lord? If that's all he said, if he stopped there, it'd be some cosmic level, virtuous warrior in the service of the high king of the universe. That sounds pretty cool. I don't know if there's a superhero exactly like that, but that's what comes to mind. If all I'm reading is verses one through six, this is pretty cool. We're God's servants for your sake, manifesting the light of the gospel, even coming in conflict with the God of this world who's trying to blind the minds of the unbelievers, and we're shining the light to push him back. That's pretty cool. Just like Jeremiah the prophet was told, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. To pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. That sounds pretty cool. I have set you over nations and kingdoms. But as with Jeremiah and as with Paul and so with us, that's not the full picture. Verse 7, he continues, But... But we have this treasure, meaning the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The treasure, the gold, if you will, is, as I said, the gospel. And the jars, the earthenware vessels, these common everyday pots, if you will, uh, uh, cookware or, uh, you know, we, the only thing we really have nowadays that's like it is the, the little orangish pots we have for plants. The, that is us, or the, in this case, the apostles themselves. And that contrast, so just imagine the image that he's putting forth. You've got an earthenware, earthenware or clay vessel, just a normal everyday 
common usage thing, and inside you have this treasure, this gold of the gospel. That's the contrast. And for Paul, the contrast is intentional. There is supposed to be this vast distinction between the value of the treasure and the value of the vessel that is holding it. And this is for the apostles. These are the central servants of Christ for the growing of his kingdom and church. When they speak, it is authoritative because they're apostles. Their writings are scripture because they are given the ministry of apostleship. The Spirit works through them uniquely. These are the chief servants of Christ. The church itself is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And yet, these chief servants of Christ are meant to be seen as common earthenware vessels in comparison to the treasure of the gospel. Oh, how different that is from the way things are now. Find someone who's way up there or highly esteemed in gospel ministry. Do they look like earthenware vessels? He continues, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And... Let me just say here, because some of you are probably singing that song in your mind that we're all familiar with over this very passage. There's no triumphalism here. That song, Trading My Sorrows, just skips quickly over the fact that you are in fact afflicted. You are in fact perplexed. You are in fact persecuted. You are in fact struck down. The point is this. God is intentionally bringing them to the brink keeping them alive, but with the full measure of suffering on purpose. This brings to mind some very uncomfortable word associations, but I won't say them because I don't want you to latch on to them. The stark reality of the text is this. This contrast is on purpose. It is God's purpose. And the way that this contrast is made between the earthenware vessels, the jars of clay, and the treasure is God bringing affliction into the lives of His servants. The way He shows that the power belongs to Him and that the treasure is the gospel and His servants are jars of clay is to afflict His servants. Keeping you alive for the sake of the ministry, but I'm going to bring you to the brink, to the very edge of yourself. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is God's good purpose in the lives of and the suffering of the apostles. And this is not maniacal. This is not capricious, even though it might seem that way. God intends to bring life. And how did He bring life and salvation to us all? It was through the affliction and the suffering and the death of His 
number one servant, his son, Jesus. It was his anguish. It was his crushing. It was the chastisement that fell on him that brought us peace. And God is not done. Jesus' suffering in our place does not take us off the hook for suffering in this life. And it's not popular to say that. And you can go down the street to any number of churches who will tell you the opposite. Because Jesus suffered for you, you don't have to suffer anymore. You can put that on a billboard. If we would be used by God to bring life, the life of Jesus to people, it will be in our suffering. As we imitate Christ and his faithful suffering while trusting in God, the very life of Jesus shines out from us as we suffer. Not after, not parallel with, but in our suffering, in that manifestation of the death of Christ, as we show the death of Christ in that same moment, in those same movements of God's work in our life, the life of Jesus is seen. Don't waste it. Don't waste your suffering. If you love Jesus and you adore the fact that He saves people, then God will draw you into the same path of suffering so that the life of Christ will shine from you and actually save people. God has determined that He will save men and women always through His suffering Son and His younger siblings who follow Him in the same path. Do you really want to shine the life and love of Christ out into this community and to your workplace and to your friends and family who do not know Him? Then don't flee from carrying around in your body the very death of Jesus. Let the contrast show Let it be seen that you are an earthenware vessel and the treasure is Christ in the gospel and the power belongs to Him. It's not in us. Are you okay with your life being called constantly given over to death? Brought to the very brink, to the end of yourself, so that the life of Christ will shine. There's not another way. It's not a popular way to talk about it. To say those things is not common wisdom with how to grow a church or a movement. Verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We then, we also believe and also we speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For all of this is for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Notice the flow in these verses. You believe, so you speak while suffering in hope, and then grace extends to more people, and they believe, and it starts the process over and over again. Believe, speak while suffering in hope, Grace extends, more people believe, and it just keeps going. This is where we come in, and it all results in thanksgiving and glory to God. 
This is where you are here. It could be set up to this point. Well, he's just talking about the ministry of the, the apostles, right? Right? I mean, th- this is something unique for them. Just let the apostles suffer like this and carry around the death of Jesus in their bodies. And that, that's not for us. Or maybe, maybe it's just for pastors and missionaries and things like this. And just the, the normal Christian life isn't this way. But that's not what these verses let us say. Paul has this expectation that it becomes a repeating pattern. A cycle that keeps going on. Is this not what the history of the church has shown us over the centuries and millennia? That as God providentially brings suffering and trials and tribulations into the life of His faithful ones, the gospel goes forth and more people are saved? Is this not what happened with the church in Jerusalem, the church in Thessalonica? Even as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, his first letter to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's for you too. I'm sorry. And so we get to our main text. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. This is personalized for the first time with the exception of verse 1 in chapter 4. All of the above, all that we've talked about so far, can be true without looking deeper to the more personal question. But how are you doing with all of this? And he says, so or therefore, we, we individuals, do not lose heart. So we, before we get into that personal or individual answer of the why, we know that we need to know that the reason explained before is enough to keep you from losing heart. Knowing that the Lord uses our suffering to show at the same time the death and life of Jesus as we live for Him can be enough to keep you from losing heart. And it is enough, and I can testify to that personally. That knowing that God is at work in my suffering to show the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus so that more people are drawn to Him, that is encouraging. It's not meaningless in that sense. God's on mission in your suffering. That's enough to let you not lose heart. To know that one day people will be in glory, saved from eternal punishment because He brought suffering into your life. That's enough. I, I, can, I can endure and not lose heart in my life because I know He's at work that way. His purposes are good and they are for salvation. But that's not all the Bible or this passage has to say on a personal level. It's one thing to take heart knowing that your suffering is helping or even is essential in God's plan to save others. But what about us? In this very nuanced way, right? It's usually not a good thing to ask, what's in it for me? But in this very nuanced way, at this very point, it is okay to say, yeah, but what about me? How does this help me? I understand that God's using my suffering to show the death and life of Jesus simultaneously, but what about in my own heart? How does he Bless me in it. 
Is God merely extracting out of me all the glory he wants and leaving me as a husk of a man? And his message to me is just, take courage, don't lose heart, I'm helping others through it. That's not all he has to say. Because we know that for those who love God, all things work to the good of those who love him. And because we know that because Christ suffered, God has highly exalted him. And we know that Christ endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance so that we ourselves would be made perfect. So what is this blessing? What is the personal gain in our hearts for all this affliction, all this perplexity, all this persecution, all this being struck down? Verse 16, the second half. Though our outer self is very personalized, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This verse carries the sense of even though our outer self, even though our outer man is wasting away, nevertheless, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this takes faith for it to work and to see it. Am I the only one who does not feel like this is the case? So this is the claim that... that Your inner self is being renewed. That's a staggering claim because as we're afflicted, perplexed, and struck down, does it not feel like the inner man is where the wrestle is strongest? The anxiety, the frustration, the sorrow, it's all internal. Like the suffering can be whatever it is outside and we can... Deal with it however we can, but how is it that that the inner man is renewed when our sorrow internally is the worst part of it? But that is his claim. The Lord, in his providence, causes in our suffering the enhanced and accelerated decay of our outer self. Yet in those same ways, in the same providence that he brings that into our lives, in the affliction and in the persecution, in the perplexity and in the being struck down, he renews our inward self. This is not the world's intention. This is not Satan's intention. And it's certainly not our intention because we would wish that these things would never come into our lives. It's God's purpose to renew us every day through these things. This is God's design and God's work. So we have to deal with the problem that we discuss. It doesn't feel this way. My inward self does not feel renewed. In fact, that's the place where it feels worse. And then there's a question. Okay, I'm willing to listen to this and to take the answer, but how is it? How is it that my inner self is being renewed day by day? Just notice a few things before we get to the answer to those things. This is day by day. It's slower than we might want. Gradual. Day by day, inch by inch, millimeter by millimeter, God is at work to renew you. It doesn't happen at the pace or in the 
mountaintop experience style of ways that you might want it, but it's happening. The inner man, this is the second thing to notice before we get to the answer. The inner man is the very center of your being. He's not talking about your emotions necessarily, though that might be part of it. The inner man, the idea is the the inner self, the, the you of you, if you will. What the Bible calls in other places your heart or your soul, the very center of your being. That is what is being renewed. And then last, notice this. This is coming at it from other angles theologically. Renewal does not mean lollipops, cherry blossoms, and unicorns. I'm sorry, kids. Jesus didn't have to be renewed, right? His soul never died. He never sinned. He was perfect. He didn't need to be renewed like we do. No sin. He was the perfect man. Very God of God. Amen? But he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So even as his inner man needs no renewing, he still walks with sorrow and anxiety of soul. The healthy human experience in this world, this is a side point, the healthy human experience in this world as we live in is not to be happy all the time. If you were happy all the time in view of the world that we live in, something would be deeply wrong with you. But the world tells you otherwise. That the healthy human experience in this life is to be happy and cheerful all the time. It's not. That would be insanity. No, we're supposed to have sorrowful and hopeful joy. And that almost doesn't make sense. And the world can't explain it, but that was Jesus. Sorrowful and hopeful joy all the time. That's the peace that passes all understanding. So verse 17. Now we get to answer the question, why doesn't it feel this way? And how is it that my inner self is renewed? What what is God doing in me, in myself personally, through this suffering? Verse 17. And if, if, if you could just memorize this verse and let it just stand in your heart as foundational, you would do so well. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory Beyond all comparison. So how is it that these sufferings renew the inner man? They prepare us. And we'll get to the nature of this preparation when we get to verse 17. But let's linger on this idea. This this preparatory role of suffering. First, note that Paul calls them light and momentary And he's not being glib or insensitive here. He's not looking at someone else's life and saying, yeah, those sufferings are light and momentary. So don't use this that way. Don't talk to a friend or family member and say, yeah, but your suffering is light and momentary. It doesn't feel that way in the moment. I guarantee it. He's not being glib or insensitive. He's looking at his own life. Hunted, stoned, scourged.
scourged, left for dead, in prison, going hungry, in cold, exposed to the elements. And he says, these are light and momentary. I get anxious when someone gets mad at me on social media, even if I don't know them, right? Paul had 40 men swear an oath that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed him. Talk about anxiety-inducing situations in your life. Right? He's reflecting on his lone life, this affliction, this persecution, this perplexity, this being struck down, and he says it's light, it's momentary. But we can think of our suffering in this way too. It's not just Paul. We can't, we, we, us, you and me, we can think of our suffering in this way. It is light in the sense that it is not what we deserve. Regardless of what it is, how hard your road has been, it is not what you deserve. And that may feel insensitive in the moment, but this is, this is for a person individually to internalize that the Lord is being merciful to you. He's consigned all to disobedience so that He might have mercy on all. Whatever you receive is mercy because it's not what you deserve. Viewing it that way, you, you must have a real understanding of the reality of God's wrath. So it's light. It's not what we deserve. And also it is momentary because even Methuselah's life of almost a thousand years is less than a blink in light of eternity. Regardless of how long the Lord has for you in your path of suffering, it's momentary. And it's, it's even as the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, it's like a vapor, it's, it's nothing, it's gone after a little while. But what is in this suffering for us? How can it become a blessing for my good? It's one thing to say, well, it's light and momentary, just deal with it, bear with it until it's over. It's not what you deserve, get, the, get your act together. But what does it do for us? How can it become a blessing for my good? How does it work to help make me perfect? How does it do all this? What is God really up to in my personal suffering? It prepares us for an eternal weight of glory. This is stunning. And there's so much to say about this. I'll keep myself to four things and really four this time. The rest will just be an application. First, it is God who prepares you through this suffering. Again, like I said earlier, this isn't the enemy's intention to prepare you for glory through your suffering. It is not the world's intention to prepare you for glory through your suffering. It is certainly not ours because we wouldn't want these things in our lives if we could control it. It is God's purpose in our affliction to prepare us for glory. God is at work. He has not abandoned you. It is His very hand who has allowed and providentially ordained that these things be in your life. While it was through the hands of evil men that Jesus was killed, it was ultimately the Lord who crushed him. The enemy will rage against you. The world will persecute you. And the curse lies heavy upon us all. But the Lord will take it all and work it 
for your good by preparing you for glory. It is no mistake on God's part. I mean, he doesn't make mistakes. But in his ordaining of what scripture would be written, the analogies of pottery and gold are used to describe our faith in our life. What is used to refine gold but fire? What is used to literally fire a piece of pottery except fire? We are made into vessels of honorable use through tribulation, trial, fire. We are purified. Our faith, the quality of our faith is increased. Impurities removed through fire. The second thing I want to say about this. This eternal weight of glory is beyond comparison. Isn't that what it says? If you're reading from the ESV. It's as if Paul runs out of words to describe what it is he's talking about. He actually just stacks the same words on top of each other, saying something twice. Here's, here's a way that you could literally render it. Exceedingly exceeding heaven, a heaviness of glory. Or the heaviest hyperbole of hyperbolic glory. It's actually probably the most literal way to say what he's saying here. It's exceedingly, exceedingly heavenly and heavy and glorious. If you do want to turn there with me, you can. Hebrews 12. You've heard me reference this several times as as I'm amping myself up and trying to get you amped up for the time we actually get to this passage. Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festial gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Can we even begin to comprehend this glory? The glory of Mount Zion. It's beyond comparison. We don't have the right words for it. We we just have to stack words up. Number three. This is the one where when I saw this, it really did change things for me. I hope you can see this too. Third, we would not be ready otherwise. You get that. That the glory that is to be revealed to us and in us and through us is so great that if the Lord did not bring these trials into our life, this path of suffering as we manifest the death of Christ and the life of Christ, that otherwise you wouldn't be ready for it. It's that grand, it's that glorious, that it's going to take some time of preparation and trial of fire, even as pottery and gold are made ready and refined, or else you won't be ready. His intentions are good. The wording in the Greek could also lend itself to the idea of producing. That's how the NASB words it, that he he produces in us this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The way of Christ is the way of all believers. The way of our forerunner 
is ours as well. The way of our older brother is the way of all the children of God. The way of our high priest is the way of all this royal priesthood. Being made ready for glory through suffering. Number four. It is for us and in us. Both senses probably show part of the truth here. Prepare us for, as the ESV renders it, and produces in us, as the NASB renders it. It's the dative case for you grammar nerds. Um, But the idea is that this glory is ours. It it benefits us, and it is also belonging to us. It, It is our glory, but it is also for our good. Even as Paul says in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It is a glory in you and for you. And as John, chapter, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but... We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. It is a glory for our good, but it is also in us. It is of us in a sense that what God is preparing, what He's preparing to show even all the creation is the glory He is working in your heart, in your inner man, in your inner self. And here we can ask, how? (laughs) Let's try to personalize it as far as we can. Those are just broad, grand theological categories. God is preparing you. He's producing in you this glory through your suffering. Yeah, but how? Let's be a little kid, right? Yeah, but how? How does God do this glorious work in us? How is it that this affliction, this perplexity, this persecution, this being struck down prepares us and produces in us this readiness, this eagerness for this glory? Verse 18. As we look. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The Lord works in us a preparation. And it's real time. And it produces in us this glory in and through and by our suffering by causing us to look to something. Where are you looking Not with your eyes. Hopefully you're looking up here at your Bible. Hopefully not at the alerts that come through on your phone. But where are the eyes of your heart looking? The reason why the Lord can use suffering and sorrow to produce this glory and to prepare us for this glory is that in suffering, as we suffer, the world loses its appeal to us. Through great loss, Possessions lose their stranglehold on us. In pain, we have a chance to stop chasing pleasure as an idol. In grief, the pride of life begins to look very foolish. In short, when the Lord allows us to see more of the consequences of sin and the curse 
and how it affects all things, we long for the regeneration. We long for all things to be made new. And not through our efforts, but through the return of our King. He must come and set all things right. We come to know and understand that this world is shot through and through with sin and corruption. And we do not stand above it as observers. The corruption is in us and it's our fault. What do you let the eyes of your heart look at? Is it health? Is it an idyllic or at least generally peaceful lifestyle? A perfect or generally acceptable husband or wife? Is it being debt free or financially independent? Is it a restored relationship with certain people? Is it inner peace? Is it a political party? A country? Is it obedient children? Is it pleasure and serenity? Is it acceptance? Is it a new toy, a new tool, a new car, a new instrument, a new skill, a new degree? Is it respect? Is it a legacy to leave behind? What do the eyes of your heart look at? If you set these things before your heart, you are a practicing idolater. Doesn't matter if you have a metal image at your home to bow down to, if those are before your heart, you're an idolater. And it will be God's mercy to bring suffering into your life to make you stop setting your hearts on those things. It is a sign of God's wrath to let people chase those idols without hindrance. And as he does this merciful heart surgery in us, it can't just end in becoming jaded or becoming more cynical. That's a real temptation. I wish we had more time to talk about that. As the Lord brings suffering to to make you loosen your grip on the things of this world, there's a temptation in the midst of that to become jaded and cynical. Don't do that. It must Move the focus of the eyes of our heart to the Lord, to the eternal things, to the unseen things, to where Christ is. We must set these things before our eyes. And if we don't, or if we don't do it enough, the Lord will bring suffering to us so that we will. And it is, it is His mercy that would do this for us. Not as punishment. If you're in Christ, there is no such thing as punishment anymore. God absorbed all of His wrath in Christ. It is discipline, but it is not punishment. Very important. It is God's mercy for you because if you continue to set those things before the eyes of your heart, those things that are not Christ, not eternal, the, the physical things, the things of this life, if you set those before the eyes of your heart, it will kill you. And he doesn't want his children to suffer like that. So he will work in your heart through trial and tribulation and suffering to divert the focus of the eyes of your heart from those things to him. 
And he will do this because you were made for eternity. The inner man will never cease to exist. And the only way that eternity does not become a hellish existence for you or hell itself is for your affections, the eyes of your heart, the love and joy that emanates from you is to set your eyes on Christ. He's the only thing that will sustain any heart for eternity. When he is your hope and your joy, the one on whom you have set your eyes, then every spiritual blessing is yours. All of it. There is no good gift that God will hold back from you. It is yours now and it is being made yours and the Holy Spirit himself is getting you ready to come into this inheritance. We have to get ready and we have to help each other get ready. We we just have no idea how glorious and weighty and beyond comparison he really is and just how glorious we will be. So let's talk about a few points of application as we wind this thing down. Number one, there's no answer out there in any version of Christianity, false or real, or any other religion that undoes your suffering. No religion can change the past. Maybe it's been really hard for some of you to hear these things, and I've felt the need to be cautious in places, wording things very carefully, but there's no hiding the explicit teaching of Scripture. I've got to tell you what it says, the full counsel of God. But maybe it's for those in this room who have suffered most or who have loved those who have suffered greatly that it's been really hard for you to hear this. But understand, there's, there's no answer out there that obliterates the suffering, that alters the past. You have to do something with it. Other religions try to make it go away. You can't. Number two, set your mind on things above. Glory puts your suffering, my suffering, into perspective. You've got to properly maintenance your faith. Faith is something that you've got to maintenance. It is a complex thing that needs all sorts of attention to maintain that sure, steadfast conviction that God is trustworthy. None of these encouragements will work if you don't really live your life on the tightrope between today and the day of the Lord. This encouragement won't make sense to you if that day, the great and awesome day of the Lord, is not in your mind lodged as a big deal. And I so want to help you. I so eagerly want to help you suffer well and to endure through suffering. But this scriptural encouragement, what God says to you about your suffering, won't work unless you really believe that He will stand before all flesh and judge and return and establish His kingdom here forever. Number three. Help others. (laughs) And yes, help yourself with the means that God has given you to alleviate suffering. And I want to clarify right here that you should use what God has providentially put into your life to alleviate suffering. 
God's purposes in suffering do not invalidate our attempts to alleviate and to lessen suffering. Yes, go to the doctor. Yes, take the ibuprofen. Yes, eat a meal so you don't suffer hunger. If he's providentially ordained that you have that. Help others and help yourself with the means that God has given you to alleviate suffering. You're not supposed to be a masochist or a sadist. Okay, Only Jesus had to suffer truly alone and without any aid. That's the one place where we can't be like him. Realize that you have no idea what a person is dealing with. You really don't. I really don't. We have fightings within and fears without, as the old hymn says. It is true, on the one hand, that all of our suffering is common to man, right? We, we all kind of deal with the same stuff. But let me put this very starkly. If God is this master heart surgeon with his scalpel cutting and directing our, the attention of our eyes to glory, then we don't know in another person's heart just how deeply his scalpel has cut. They may not be dealing with anything huge on the outside, but his knife, his surgical knife to direct the eyes of our hearts elsewhere may be causing severe discomfort. And you don't know how severe that is in the heart of someone else. You just don't really know what another person is dealing with. We can often have a a type of one-upmanship or to say very quickly, oh, I understand We're trying to explain and be vulnerable and a person jumps in and interrupts, well, here's what I experienced. That's not helpful. You just don't really know. So look to the example of Paul. He endured for others to help them endure. We're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In helping others, and here's the glorious thing. This this is a treasure, and I wish I had more time to discuss this. In bearing one another's burdens, you alleviate suffering, right? Many hands make light work. Someone is, God brings suffering into the life of a person or ordains or providentially allows that to happen. Through the body of Christ, the suffering is alleviated. It's not as difficult. But does that mean the glory producing and preparation for glory is any less No, it's actually compounded. So in helping one another, the suffering is lessened, but the preparing for glory is increased. Do you see the blessing of the church, the body of Christ in your life for this? Make your suffering count for more by sharing it with each other and allowing yourself to be known so that others can bear your burdens. Number four, this is the only answer that redeems your suffering. All of it. Other religions try, other answers from the Bible try that aren't valid, but they can't possibly offer an answer that redeems every single piece of your suffering. Only Christ prepares us for glory through it and produces glory in us by it. 
From the flat tire to the failing eyesight, from failure to feelings, from cancer to the creaking back, from crying of the heart to the crying baby, even the actions of wicked men, just like with Jesus, as he was unjustly stretched out on a wooden beam and nailed to it, so in your life. Even in the actions of Satan himself, like in the life of Job, God has not lost or relinquished control. He is preparing you for glory and producing it in you. He redeems all of it and makes it work for your good. And so consider this. Would you have it any other way? There are people I love dearly who will not embrace this because they say God couldn't have had anything to do with my suffering. A good God would never allow that to happen. If anything can happen without God's ordaining it and allowing it by his own sovereign will, then chaos reigns and and chaos is God instead of God. No, brothers and sisters, we all, all of his creation is under the curse and subjected to futility in hope. Don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Again, I know this has been hard for some to hear, especially if you have suffered greatly and you're looking at me like, what do you know about suffering? I know what the word says. And if you view it this way, and if you understand what God is doing, and if you allow Him to work by His Spirit to direct your eyes to the things that are above, it will be for your good. No matter how greatly the enemy rages. All of it must work for your eternal good. The universe would be undone if that does not happen, if you're in Christ. Because God has sworn and will not change His mind that he will use every millisecond of your suffering for your eternal good. He will bring many sons to glory and he will produce in you and me for you a glory beyond all comparison and he will prepare us for this glory. And we don't have words strong enough or beautiful enough to describe it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. The perfect servant of God. The one with no sin. Suffering. Dying. Agonizingly perishing on our behalf. Help us understand that we are invited into the same kind of service for you so that the death of Christ and the life of Christ would shine from ourselves. We thank you. Help us understand that only you can redeem our suffering. Only you have good purposes in it. Help us trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.